Hi there, and welcome to the History of Violence. Today we've got an interview for a change, which I'm really excited about, with Dr. Patrick Gunn, who's an Associate Professor at Durham University. And we'll be talking about the Victorian Election Violence Project, which is a sort of big um, multi-institution, multidisciplinary study um, into election violence in the Victorian era, as the name suggests. So that's just coming up right now. Thanks. Hi Patrick, welcome to the show. Uh, thanks for coming on. Um, I think this is a really interesting, exciting topic. Uh, it should give us some good historical details, but also I think some contemporary insights as well. So uh, yeah, could you tell me a little bit about the project and, and yourself? Yeah, thank you very much for having me uh, and the project on the podcast. Uh, I'm Patrick Kuhn. I'm an Associate Professor of Comparative Politics at uh, Durham University. And um, the project really came about as a rather long story. It started about in 2010 or so when I was working on my PhD at the University of Rochester in New York, um, writing on contemporary cases of election violence and was in the library stacks when I came across a book by Charles Seymour and Donald Fry. It's now about almost 100 years old. And it had the title, How the World Votes, the story of democratic development in elections, which I found intriguing and started to read and was really fascinated that election violence isn't kind of that new phenomenon that I thought it was like that emerged after the end of the Cold War with, you know, democratization waves in developing countries. I then wrote a postdoc proposal for the University of Cambridge in 2012, which was rejected on the project. And when coming to Durham, started to kind of rethink the project with two of my colleagues, Nick Vivian and Gibbon Cohen. And we developed an ESRC grant prod, uh, proposal over two years from 2014 to 16. We were lucky enough and fortunate enough to kind of get it funded and then started the project in January 2018. And it was supposed to end in December 2020, but due to uh, COVID uh, and COVID undermining our ability to do the archival and field research that we've planned. We got a costed extension until June. So the project is like at its final stage. We have most of the data um, and we're working on outputs, uh, but we're of course still struggling to kind of get to the primary source data that we hoped to be able to exploit to substantiate some of the quantitative findings that we have. I should also mention at the end that um, there's two more people on the project now. So uh, my colleague Gary Hutchinson, who's a 19th century political historian, came uh, onto the project as the postdoc in 2018. And since January uh, this year, Luke Blackshill, who's also a 19th century political historian, is now also part of the project. So we're really an interdisciplinary team of political scientists and 19th century political historians working on the topic. That's great. But yeah, I mean, the pandemic's really put a sort of um, big obstacle in the way of any of this archival research. But it's interesting how you talk about the genesis of the project, kind of, you know, so much of our library work now is online, and that's great. And it's so much better access for students. But there is something really great about being in a library. And you know, you go for one book, and then you find another one that looks really interesting. And it's quite like organic, the way projects can develop through that. And I think that's something that's I've personally kind of missed going to actual physical libraries and being oh, totally. in the middle of all the books. You know, it's I, mean, I, I tell my PhD students that if they can get the book from the stacks, they should always get them from the stacks because the books left and right sometimes give you the information that you're looking for uh, as well and kind of help you set your project or your, you know, your research in a broader context. Yeah, definitely. I remember when I was in my undergrad, like, you know, all the sort of uh, quite dry books on sort of, you know, political constitutions were, were right next to the anthropology section that had all these books on like witchcraft and folklore. So I'd always go and try and get my required reading and then be like, ah, but these ones look much more interesting. Uh, but yeah, so I mean, as you kind of alluded to, I mean, you started off, uh, you yourself are a scholar of um, modern electoral violence, and, and you started off kind of 
working on that and, and then you've moved in this direction so i mean election electoral violence is something that we talk about a lot in the context of emerging democracies often in the developing world and a lot of my research kind of deals with that as well and I, until i came across this project i hadn't really thought that much about this longer history of it um you know, probably because there were relatively few democracies in the eighteen hundreds, so it's just not really a phenomenon. I, I'd kind of fit into that context. So, what what is it that you're hoping to learn by looking at this time period in particular, and and what makes kind of England and Wales in this time period such a, a good case? Yeah. So the historical focus of the project really came about to overcome some of the limitations that you have when you're studying contemporary cases of election violence. So the problem that you have when studying the contemporary cases, you often lack fine-grained and reliable data that if you can get it, it's really difficult to collect and really expensive uh, to collect. So, you know, many uh, countries do not give you uh, election outcomes at the polling station level. Um, you know, many elections, uh, countries that, that you have election violence in don't have good administrative records, uh, etc. Uh, then when you're studying this in the contemporary context, you have relatively short time periods. So like, you know, most of the cases where we see election violence today kind of got elections at the end of the Cold War in Sub-Saharan Africa or Southeast Asia. So you have like 30 years that gives you a run of like five to seven elections, depending on how often you have elections. Uh, and that kind of hampers the distinctions between triggers and trends. So you 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 know you get a bouncy wave of some some elections have violence, some don't. But you don't know is this like just you know a fluctuating curve, or is this like an upward trend, or is it like a downward trend? Like you know what is the distinction between those things? And then there's really no country that democratized or made steps towards democracy at the end of the Cold War uh, that has successfully eradicated election violence. Most of the cases, you know, have election violence, uh, and it goes up and down, but there's no case where you can clearly say, yeah, they had like really violent elections early on, but now, you know, it, it's kind of completely not a topic anymore. And so by looking at 19th century election violence in England and Wales, we're able to kind of overcome these limitations, right? So, there's lots of really detailed, fine-grained data due to the terrific Victorian record-keeping. You know, at that time, England was an empire, or you know, Britain was an empire, and they ran the world without a computer, or the computer being the bureaucracy. So they had a really detailed way of keeping records, and those things are still all preserved uh, and can be digitized. Um, you know, we, we look at the general elections between 1832 and 1914. So that's a run of 20 uh, elections. So that gives you a much longer time period to look at. And you can really kind of distinguish uh, trends and triggers. And you can kind of hold trends constant and focus on what are the, what are the triggers of, of election violence. Um, it's also a country that has like a lot of constituencies, right? Parliaments have around 600 members throughout that period. And so it gives you like 600 observations over time that you can exploit the variation within. And then there's, you know, while there's no really violence-free election during this period, there's nevertheless a really clear rise in election violence in the early uh, 1860s, and then a drop again in the late 1880s. And that rise persists over a certain amount of time, and the drop persists afterwards. So you can talk about you know, what caused that rise and what caused that drop and hopefully hopefully learn something more general uh, that is applicable to not just that time period, but maybe also to contemporary cases. Although, of course, contextual differences need to be taken into account. Yeah, I mean, that, that's, that's a fascinating aspect to this. Is I guess a lot of people would immediately think, you know, what is the relevance to modern cases? And um, I guess we'll come back to that in a minute. But one of the other things I quite enjoyed with it, I suppose... We should also maybe talk about exactly what election violence is here, but one of the initial things that I found really interesting about this project was almost the kind of mm, the diversity and the kind of forms of election violence. I mean, some of them even being slightly kind of funny or whimsical, but I suppose, could you talk a bit about exactly like what is elect electoral violence and, and what are some of the sort of more interesting cases that have came up in the, the research you've been doing? Yeah, sure. Uh, so we have a relatively broad conceptualization of election violence. Um, uh, our conceptualization is that anything that is causing physical damage um, or 
is you know the explicit and immediate threat of physical damage to persons or property as a direct result from the national election cycle is coded as election violence right so that includes you know assaults um you know um kidnapping uh, property damages, uh, you know, rioting, etc. But also, if someone comes with a stick and kind of threatens you immediately to to hit it over your head, then that is also included. It excludes things that people would still be considering election violence today, like for example, ten, um, landlords threatening their tenants with eviction if they don't vote for the for the party that the landlord prefers. That's something that you know is just not reported uh, we don't have a reliable way of, of coding which is why we've kind of excluded from our conceptualization um election violence is of course like you know an extremely serious matter and something that is absolutely unacceptable and undermines electoral integrity and elections are a key element of democracy but nevertheless you know because of maybe the historical distance the differences in cultures there's there's you know we found ourselves at times smiling uh, a bit about some of the stuff that was going on, but there's of course also absolute tragedy uh, that's going on. I think maybe this might also be the time where I should briefly talk about what elections look like, because in order to understand what these cases of election violence are and so forth, it's, it's helpful to kind of know what elections are in the 19th century, because they're quite different from today. Yeah, absolutely. That'd be great. So, um, just as a, a way of short background, or like a primary 19th century elections in England and Wales, it's a period that is um, influenced by, by massive economic and social changes, right? It's the beginning of the industrialization, it's the mechanization of agriculture, um, you know, and that happens at the same time as the emergent, uh, emergence of democracy and elections. So it's really kind of like, you know, democracy and elections in, during turbulent times, um, the franchise was relatively limited in 1832 and then expanded in two waves from, you know, 1867, Second Reform Act and the Third Reform Act in 1884. But even after 1884, only 60% of all men could vote and no women, of course. So that means, you know, roughly uh, 70% of the population didn't have the ability to make their voices heard through the ballot box. So it's a fairly limited democracy. Political parties only emerge during that period as well, so they don't really exist yet as established entities, right? So um, early on, they, they're divided in themselves. They're like, you know, more conservative-leaning uh, Whigs and more radical Whigs. And in the conservatives, you have um, more, more extreme conservatives and more moderate conservatives. The parties only crystallize out in the 50s and 60s during that period. And then the electoral system is really different from today. So most constituencies at the time, up until the Third Reform Act, were double member constituencies and each voter had two votes. Uh, so you could you know, put all your votes towards one party or to the candidates towards one party. You could split your votes to the liberals and the conservatives, right? Or you could just only vote one vote and, and not use the second vote. What you couldn't do is double down your vote for one candidate, right? You couldn't give a candidate two votes. But that opens up like a whole array of, you know, electoral strategies, et cetera, that, you know, we don't really think about today when we think about single member district first past the post electoral systems. But then most importantly, elections were a significant event in the national and local public calendars and accompanied with, you know, all sorts of entertainment, right? There were bands, there was music, there were prize fights and boxing matches, and there was free, free food, and most importantly, a large amount of free alcohol of uh, paid by the candidates to mobilize voters and supporters. So these elections were kind of public rituals that, you know, um, involved hustings that were held publicly at market squares with huge crowds being in attendance. Voting was public, so each elector had to go on stage and actually publicly say which vote he's giving to which candidate for everyone to hear. It was then recorded in a poll book up until the introduction of the secret ballot, which was only in the mid of the periods in 1872. And then elections were held over multiple days, right? So you had like two or three days of elections and in at midday at the end of day 
the stand of the poles was reported for everyone, right? Which created this tension of almost like a horse race type of dynamic. And once the results were done, you know, the bells were rung, the, uh, you know, the results were announced and there was a chairing ceremony where the candidates that were elected were carried through the streets on chairs. Uh, and that was like a really public ritual that happened that, you know, then only during that period eventually got dismantled uh, after the very violent election in 1868 um, when voting became, you know, a secret thing. So that kind of accounts for what's happening on these things. So a lot of the, the the more hilarious cases that we have are associated with, you know, this carnival atmosphere. So like in 1835, an election in cows in the Isle of Wight, a man dies from overeating at an election feast. In Did it say what he was eating? <laughs> Sorry? Did it say what he was eating? Uh, no, I mean mostly these feasts, uh, you know, involved a lot of meat uh, and 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 corn and etc. Mm -hmm. uh, in 1847, in election at Sepstal, the arrival of a beer wagon sends the crowd into an excitement, resulting in assaults, property damage, and then the death of a young surgeon. In 1852, there was a riot in Wakefield that started when a conservative drummer snapped a liberal drummer's sticks, uh, and that started the fighting. Uh, in 1886, uh, in, in Blandford, uh, a brass horn player attempted to hit the unionist candidate over the head with his horn, but missed and hit one of his committee men. And that started uh, uh, a disturbance. Then uh, I think what you might be referring to is we had one post of the project's um, Twitter thread on the use of dead animals, etc. Yeah. that got huge attention on the internet. I'm not quite sure why. But, you know, they were, you know, they, they threw things at candidates, not just, you know, rocks and turnips and uh, uh, rotten eggs, but also dead cats and rabbits. And often that was a symbol of the political uh, opposition to the political issue of poaching. So in the 40s, there was the um, Night Poaching Act that was passed that prevented people from, um, you know, catching rabbits and game on private land. Uh, which was a way for the poor, of course, to get uh, to protein and, and, and meat. And some of the candidates were protested for supporting that act. Um, you know, fish was thrown at people, sometimes uh, like in the Tower Hamlet elections of 1868, to kind of remind a candidate that he previously lost a seaside seat uh, uh, in, in Yarmouth. Um yeah, so there's there's lots of these things. Um, there was, I think, there's a case of a, a dog that was um, uh, colored uh, with the liberal colors and the and the conservative colors, and the dog started licking off the paint, and then he died. Oh, no. There was a donkey being uh, uh, brought around town in the rugby election with a sign saying "Free Trade for My Sort," and that was paraded in front of the liberal club. And the small scuffle between parties uh, um, started and the little girl that was leading the doc donkey was almost um, injured in oh, no. that case. So very interesting. Yeah, I mean, that festival, I mean, overall, it's a terrible system for a number of reasons, not least uh, the lack of a secret ballot. But that sort of, you know, carnival atmosphere, it does sound fun. <laughs> Certainly be a way of getting people involved nowadays. But uh, yeah, I mean, one thing I guess you kind of touched on there that I found interesting and, and also later on with the sort of suffragettes as a major movement is how much of this kind of this violence wasn't necessarily always based around political parties which you know when you look at modern electoral violence it tends to be maybe paramilitary groups related to a political party or related to some sort of personalistic leader whereas it seemed where a, a lot of these were about you know policy issues specifically rather than party allegiance in some cases you know so like the suffragettes being one um or as you say like uh, issues over poaching and things like that so, so that was like quite an interesting part of it and i think you kind of still see that nowadays is there's more there's more contention and there's more violence when when the elections or when the political events are about discrete policies like brexit or like constitutional issues in northern ireland or maybe even you could imagine in scotland some sort of unrest around that um, rather than it being a sort of Labour versus Conservative kind of thing. Um, is, is that something that comes through in the data, or is it quite based around party allegiance? Yeah, so um, we actually in, in the data we find that uh, election violence isn't something that has like, you know, one cause. I mean, it's, it's obviously a, a complicated topic, but there's like three distinct types of, of election violence that, that we find. 
And uh, this idea of violence being used in order to kind of uh, get political change or to speak towards political change speaks towards one of the one of the types of election violence that we observe, which is uh, the use of election violence as a form of popular expression by the disenfranchised, right? Uh, so, you know, as, as I said before, even after the Third Reform Act, 70% of the people, you know, around 40% of men and all of the women didn't have the right to vote. So, you know, violence was one way to um, express their opinion, right? Be it through supporting their preferred candidate, registering protest uh, on the outcome of an election. And it was sometimes also, you know, sparked by particular issues. Um, and issues rather than parties, of course, trigger this because issues tend to kind of fall exactly, you know, on existing social cleavages, right? And that mobilizes people. And it mobilizes, you know, people not just on pure abstract things, but it mobilizes people on identity issues and on things that they identify with themselves, right? And, and uh, or, yeah, on a deeply personal level. So, so that, that, that kind of uh, resonates. The, with regard to whether we see that violence actually was uh, effective in getting particular changes done, uh, it's something that we're really interested in exploring, but it's not something that we've really have done so in the past. So, you know, the, the obvious question for us is, to what extent did election violence help bring about the Second Reform Act and then the Third Reform Act? So the, the conventional wisdom in, in the historical literature uh, by people like Cowling and, and Himmelfarb on the Second Reform Act is that it was brought about by um, parliamentary maneuvers between the Liberals and the Tories in order to, to win elections, um, and that really violence and riot considerations didn't matter. And that's quite in contrast to the Great Reform Act at the beginning of the period, 1832, where the swing riots are associated with having kind of triggered this first change in the electoral uh, system and the extension of the franchise in order to kind of deal with, 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 with the upper uproar. So almost like, you know, democratization under the threat of revolution, so to say. Mm -hmm. But that doesn't seem to be the case in the Second Reform Act now. We would be interested in actually looking at this at a more granular level uh, of like, you know, which parliamentarians voted in favor of the extension? Uh, you know, do they come from constituencies that have a more violent history during elections or not? Were they themselves targeted, etc.? There's mm -hmm. some speeches in parliament that kind of speak towards these things of like if we don't extend this you know the masses are going to teach us uh revolt uh, etc but but there isn't we, we haven't really done much work on that yet the third reform act is uh, much more trivial it's it the extension there came about through a larger series of um changes including changes in the electoral system to a single member first past the post electoral system uh, and the introduction of the Corruption and Legal Practices Act. And it was mostly kind of something to bring the county um, enfranchisement in line with the borrower enfranchisements, right? So the Second Reform Act in increased the enfranchisement only within the boroughs, but not within the counties. And the Third Reform Act just equalized that. So there, uh, I don't think violence really mattered much. With regard to the suffragettes, the... Conventional historical wisdom is that actually uh, the, the, the militancy campaign, which you know, only features towards the very end of our period that we're studying. So we have some events around elections in 1906 and, and uh, 1910. Um, that really was helpful in raising public attention or raising public awareness of the issue. But the conventional wisdom is that it really didn't help in getting wider public support. In fact, it seemed to alienate um, the supporters of it in Parliament more than it supported it. Um, so there were like four occasions in the past, I think 1897, 18, uh, 1904, 1908, and 1911, when there was a parliamentary majority for extending the franchise to women. But 
uh, it failed because there wasn't given enough parliamentary time by the government, which was one of the tactics to avoid passing it because the, the liberal governments at the time were fearful that extending the franchise to women without, to, to, to the upper class women would kind of incorporate a lot of conservative voting mm-hmm. women. Uh, so they, they weren't really that keen on extending it without extending the male franchise as well. And the suffragettes didn't want the male franchise to be further extended in addition to the uh, female franchisement. So, you know, the the militant activities really alienated their supporters in parliament. It alienated the men that had the right to vote. So uh, politicians that stood in support of it couldn't get reelected. So it didn't seem to be very, very effective in that regard. Of course, their activities were not limited to elections. Uh, They're not focused primarily around elections, but, you know, were used throughout that that later early 20th century period. That's really interesting because, yeah, I mean, there's been a lot more focus lately, I guess, on splits within the suffragette movement, especially on things like race. But I hadn't really considered that. I mean, yeah, class interests very much trumping um, other kind of identity interests, I guess that's been quite a kind of perennial story in British politics. Um, great. But yeah, I mean, uh, were there any other sort of findings that you've had so far? I know it's still at an early stage, but I mean, how does the data you've gathered sort of fit with the existing kind of uh, historical assumptions of the existing literature? Is there anything else kind of new or surprising that's came out of it? Yeah, so, um, so I mean, in other case, by studying 19th century England and Wales is really interesting is that the historical literature hasn't really paid that much attention to election violence. There is some early work by Seymour uh, and Gash, but then there's like a large period of like nothing. And then now it seems to be uh, the dominant wisdom in the historical literature is that, oh, violence is this result of this, you know, ritualistic uh, election activity, which mobilizes uh, people, which creates these tensions and it's part of, you know, the Victorian culture. And once you get rid of this, you know, ritualistic element and this public display, it kind of goes away, right? And and that's not what we observe. Um, so we, we have very different findings and we kind of show that it's not just, uh, you know, a, a, an this ad hoc type of violence that but, but violence was used strategically by the disenfranchised, as already mentioned, but also by the candidates in order to demobilize voters. So to, to complete the, the, the story I started before, where he said, like, there's different types of election violence. One of the findings is that there are three types. So there's the festival and carnival atmosphere that contributed to, um, to, to election violence. Right, where I've already given some examples. I mean, it goes so far as like in 1865, you had kids that were arrested for throwing stones uh, during the election proceedings, and uh, the kids in court gave gave to protocol that you know adults told them, "Oh, it's fine. You can throw stones. Like there's no law during election periods." Right. <laughs> right. So there's there's this common understanding that this was like a lawless uh, um, area or lawless. Uh, period, so to say. Um, then the, the second element, which kind of speaks to the contemporary election violence literature, is the strategic use of violence by candidates and their agents with an aim of, you know, threatening, kidnapping, or otherwise preventing voters from going to the polls, right? And that often involved the hiring of so-called roughs, bullies, bludgeon men's, or as they were called in Nottingham at the time, and other places, lambs. So those are mostly people that were brought in from other places, they were often employed by the parties as canvassers, right? But then were uh, dispersed into the crowds in order to kind of instigate violence. And in particular, they were used when the party was lagging in order to prevent other electors to reaching the stage. So electors, because they had to go to the stage and then publicly declare their vote, had to go through a gauntlet of, you know, people yelling at them, throwing things at them, etc., to just cast their vote. And when you were coming towards the marketplace as an electorate and you saw that, you, you know, you might have decided to turn away. All right. And there's several um, reports about this in the newspaper, but also in like these parliamentary commission reports that were done afterwards, as, after some of the most violent elections, where it kind of shows uh, or has evidence in there where candidates were thinking, oh, you know, we're trailing in the polls. So 
we brought out our canvassers to prevent voters from certain areas that we knew because of the poll books and the public voting uh, were going to vote for the opposition to get to the marketplace, right? And there's some some nice stories, like, for example, in 1832 in Hartford, uh, there were a bunch of um, roughs brought in by the conservatives and were allowed to camp out on the mayor's field. And they would literally kind of insult everybody that walked by that was going to vote liberal. Uh, and when then a liberal crowd kind of created to confront them, the mayor called in military in order to break up uh, uh, the, 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 that crowd. Um, in Nottingham, the, the famous Nottingham riots in 1865 were started by Tory hired roughs that during the campaign period went in and, and you know, dismantled uh, a meeting with, of the liberals. Uh, in 1852, the police shut down a, a protectionist weapon factory in in Liverpool, showing that you know the protectionists actually were creating weapons, bludgeons, etc., in order to be used during elections. So it was something that was clearly planned. Um, but of course, you know, as time went on, the police got smarter. So there's a a nice story about the 1868 election in Reading where. Uh, the police saw that there were about 200 roughs being brought in. And so they went to the pubs where these guys were and offered to hire them as special constables in order to kind of make sure that the election would remain peaceful. And what they then did is they just locked them up in various public buildings over the election. Uh, <laughs> That's great. So, uh, you know, this, the, the, this idea of hired roughs and the strategic use of violence is, is not, is not, you know, is not something that is only there in contemporary cases. Often contemporary cases involve the youth, but it's something that is already there in, in these historical things. And then, as I said, the last case or type is um, this popular expression uh, or the, the use of violence as a form of popular expression by the disenfranchised. Mm-hmm. Then what we've also done, because we've collected the data is we looked at the temporal trends. Uh, as I already said, there's like an inverted U-shaped pattern with regard to violence. It's um, about like 100 incidences in election from 1832 to 1859, and then about 250 incidences from 1865 to 1885, and then around 100 again from 1886 to 1910. So that's way more than any historian has thought. Um, the only people that have kind of tried to systematically collect this was Wasserman and Jaggard in 2007. Uh, and they have like, you know, in the, in, in the low tens uh, of cases, so below 100. So they missed quite, quite, a, quite a, f- a few of them with regard to the geographical pattern. Um, there's no real regional clusters. It's not like a case of everything happens around London or, you know, everything happens in, in, in the North, etc. But literally where you had people living and where there were elections, um, there was a chance of violence. There were really similar patterns uh, in different areas. All had this kind of, you know, U- inverted U-shaped relationship. Um, in the first period, there were like 25% of all constituencies were affected. In the in the peak, there was like around 40 constituencies affected, 40% of all constituencies affected, and then later on around 15. So it becomes more concentrated uh, in, in in the later period. Interesting. So yeah, I mean, I think this is a really interesting thing you say about you know this instrumental use of violence and that being something that's missed in the historic literature i guess that's why it's really good to have you know political scientists and historians working on this together because you know this idea of the, the electoral violence being strategic and well planned that's like pretty common commonly held in the studies of modern election violence so sort of applying that back i mean it makes sense a lot um yeah great i mean one thing you also flagged up there that sort of was interesting was the police and how their tactics evolved so I mean, maybe this is reaching too much for a contemporary comparison with everything going on around the protest bill and things like that just now. But um, I was struck by how, in some of your cases, the police um, seem to be escalating or even instigating the violence. But but then in other ones, as you described, they, they become really sophisticated at actually rooting out election violence. And I mean, the Met Police was, they'd only just been founded shortly before the Great Reform Act, right? In um, City of Glasgow Police, maybe sort of years before that. But professional policing was a pretty new 
phenomenon um, at the start of the time period you were looking at. So, I mean, how did policing sort of change over time and, and how did the police manage to, you know, eventually get a hold of this? Yeah, so the security forces are, are a big topic in contemporary election violence as well. So it's one of the things in a, in a recent uh, study by the United States Institute for Peace that talks about security sector reform as one of the most effective ways of, of curbing uh, contemporary election violence. Um, this is an interesting thing that we want to look into, and we have a lot of interesting data that allows us to do this, but we haven't really managed to do at this time, is the the development of a professional police force and, and how that kind of uh, affects election violence. So as you said, early on, a lot of times when there was a riot, the riot act would be read, and then the, actually the military was brought in because there wasn't any established uh, police forces, right? I mean, there was always some kind of form of policing in these municipalities, but they were mostly kind of, uh, you know, certain people hired by the mayor's uh, office in order to kind of keep up, you know, general public security, etc. But there was no professional training, there were no standards, there were no processes, uh, you know, they, they were, because they were, you know, hired by the executive there there was not like there there wasn't any checks on them uh, etc uh so you when the military came they obviously were quite radical so like you know this goes back to the peterloo massacre in 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 very early uh um 19th century um and it was often counterproductive in the sense that, you know, they would come in and they would start kind of trying to break things up violently with, you know, uh, swords, etc. And that's when a lot of uh, the deaths that we have. So overall, we find 92 confirmed cases of deaths. And like the, the, the place, the election that was most deadly was 1832. And there was in particular... Uh, at the Sheffield riot in 1832, where the military came in, and the military is responsible for five deaths in that in that riot, uh, all young men um, and 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 boys that were that were killed. So the the professionalization of the police in that period really happens in like the mid 50s. So in um, 1856, if I remember correctly, the County and Borough Police Act was brought in, which uh, made the establishment of a professional police force compulsory. And then that created, uh, you know, the the impetus for creating a composition of, you know, what does a police force look like? What, how should it be set up? What are the rules of engagement, etc., that were kind of developed and standardized to that period? And what I what we do reserve do observe qualitatively is that you get fewer and fewer cases as time goes on, where you have bigger disturbances or riots, where you know security forces are responsible for an escalation or you know deaths occurring uh, in 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 those in those cases. So you know it's something that will be interesting to kind of look at, which we have I hope to be able to do. I mean, we also have census data which, you know, is, uh, tells us exactly how many people were working for the police or in security in these different places, which you can then, you know, correlate with, with the number of with the amount of violence that you have in, in specific locations. Oh, that's fascinating. Yeah, that sounds really interesting. Did the police, I mean, did there tend to be any patterns and, you know, were they harsher on certain groups? Were they harsher on the working class and on other groups? Or or did the police tend to kind of have a pro-government bias at any of these points? Or or did they operate like fairly independently? Well, I, I wouldn't have any systematic evidence that I could share on that at this point. But, I mean, it obviously makes sense that professionalization reduces these kind of biases, right? I mean, early on, if you're hired as the person in charge of security by the mayor's office and you know what the mayor's partisan leaning is and you're not held responsible in any meaningful way and there's no professional standards, that means that you become, you, you know, more partisan uh, in, in, in the way that you're enforcing things, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Great. Um, yeah, so, I mean, you've alluded to this already and, and, and it's sort of spelled out in the website, but, I mean... The UK is interesting as a case because, uh, yeah, as you said at the start, it's a country that had experienced high levels of electoral violence and was able over time to sort of largely eliminate that. Um, 
is there some lesson that we can learn here for other countries? I mean, obviously, it's a very different context historically, but um, are there any sort of policy lessons or lessons that can be learned at this stage? Yeah, so th- that's the that's the big question, right? Uh, I mean, that's the big question that we'd like to have an answer or like everyone would like to have an answer to what can we do in order to kind of curb uh, election violence before it occurs? Uh, because obviously that would, you know, massively increase electoral integrity. It, it, it might help towards democratization. Um, we're currently working towards understanding what the causes of that drop in election violence in the late 1880s in the UK are. And it's part of the, the monograph that will be coming out from this project. Uh, we haven't really done that much work on this yet. Uh, you know, what we know is uh, contestation plays a big role with regard to the causes. Uh, we know that um, the electoral dynamics and, and the creation of party slates running in elections uh, matters for election violence. Um, you know, we're looking at what the role of institutional changes were and what the rule of uh, the security forces are. But we don't think that the drop actually, you know, is accounted for by the institutional changes uh, or, or security developments, because these happen all before uh, the, the, the drop actually occurs in the data. So, you know, you have the Corruption and Legal Practices Act in 1883. You have the change in the electoral system, the extension of the franchise in 1884. But then you have a really violent election in 1885. In fact, it's the most violent election as by the number of violent incidences that we record. Um, it's over 400 incidences in, in that election. Um, what we think might matter more is changes in party organization and how parties participate in national elections. So early on, you know, candidates were responsible for most of the costs. The parties didn't provide any organizational effort or, you know, resource support for this and elections were really expensive at the time so you know we were talking of people parting with like a quarter million of pounds in today's money to run for a constituency right that's you know it's 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 an insane amount of money and finding candidates that were willing to do this was 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 a struggle for many parties uh for both parties actually and um so if if we you know if it is a case that this change in party organization matters, then I think one of the lessons that can be drawn from this is that, you know, we should really look at trying to establish and strengthening political parties rather than having them be kind of these pop-up organizations with, you know, whoever is currently running and becoming kind of the organization to support this one name, something that is more consistent and has a longer, you know, shelf life and therefore it can experience reputational costs uh, from bad behavior uh, that that would be interesting and i think it, it it also points towards something that the contemporary election violence literature has kind of neglected the role of political parties uh, and and how they do things there's only yeah. a handful of articles that come to mind that look at the role of parties um, in election violence yeah, that's really interesting because, yeah, I mean, there is increasingly work on these the, the political dynamics. Well, I, I can focus on peace building, so I'm thinking about that, the sort of post-conflict party system development. But, yeah, I mean, when you're looking at the kind of big international peace building efforts, it's, there's a lot of focus on institutional change because it's almost like that's where you can put the pressure on and you, know, you can make the government reorganise itself in some way. And, yeah, there isn't a lot of thought put into actually parties as organisations there. So I think that's a really interesting point. Um. I mean, this is maybe, again, reaching a bit hard for a historical uh, or contemporary comparison. And, and I guess any answer you give here would be purely speculative. But I just wondered if there's any sort of, you know, insight, speculative or not, about, you know, the kind of potential uptick in unrest or electoral disorder in Western countries recently. I mean, I'm especially thinking the US after the um, presidential election there, um, the UK around Brexit slightly as well. I mean, there, there does seem that even in these countries that are really well-established democracies uh, that had a good handle on electoral violence, there seems to be some form of backsliding. Um, people talk about democratic backsliding in general in the West, but but I suppose also on kind of, you know, electoral integrity um, and electoral violence. Um, does it seem like there's any kind of backsliding here to you? Um, and are there any lessons that we can learn from, from the material you've unearthed? Yeah, so uh, as you say, that's probably rarely 
very speculative and I, I'm not quite sure we are at the stage of our project where we can actually give like a, a firm answer. And, and there are, you know, a lot of contextual differences, right? As I point out, the elections work in a different way. The electoral system is very peculiar and, 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 and different, um, etc. But there's also some things that are, you know, similar between developing countries today and, 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 and the 19th century uh, UK case. Um, I mean, if you look at the established indicators like the varieties of democracy indicators or the electoral integrity project, there does seem to be like, you know, a backsliding uh, that's going on in, in, in various areas. I'm not sure that we can see that much of a backsliding in the US and the UK case. Um, and I definitely don't think, you know, we'll necessarily see a resurgence of election violence in the UK and the US case. That seems very unlikely to me. Uh, I mean, politicians from all established parties agree that, you know, violence in elections is, is you know, absolutely unacceptable. Um, and, and, you know, using it in a really coordinated way strategically like they were in the 19th century or as you see politicians doing in you know sub-saharan africa or southeast asia it's also not cheap right it's often thought of as like you know that's really easy to do you get a bunch of thugs and you have them do this etc it's you know it's quite it's quite organizationally difficult uh it's quite expensive and and probably you're going to get more out of spending those resources in other ways um, of mobilizing and campaigning. And as long as that's the case, right, I, I think the, 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 the argument for resurgence of election violence is, is, is a bit weak. Where I do see things, you know, where you could get more things are like post-election violence, Right. So the type of violence that you saw with, you know, the capital riots in, in, in the U.S. where, you know, politicians might whip up the frenzy of a crowd and you get these things with, you know, increased polarization um, and, you know, topics that really kind of mobilize deeply held beliefs and identities along social cleavages. But they're not like coordinated or you know um things that are in that politicians are in control of they're you know they they emerge uh they start as protests they can turn violent uh etc which is you know not a nice thing and we don't want that either but that's where i think you might see some reemergence of it but not in the case of like you know using violence to affect campaigns and, and outcomes of actual elections, right. at least not in, uh, you know, well-established democracies. It's obviously something else in emerging democracies and especially countries that I think we would classify them as competitive autocracies rather than democracies. Yeah, no, I mean, that's interesting because a lot of people in the run-up to that US election with the things that Trump had been saying were discussing the possibility of this, but as you say, I mean, I don't think Trump had the organisational ability and I don't think the Republican Party had the willingness to actually engage in, like, coordinated electoral violence. And then, of course, he had the capital rise. But, but as you say, that's that's not electoral violence as such. Um, yeah, I mean, it definitely strikes me if people underestimate the organisational work that would go into doing effective electoral violence. I think it's there's a reason you see that in post-conflict countries so much because you've got, like, networks that are, you know, built during war that can be sort of remobilised or sustained into this electoral period, whereas building up those kind of, like, networks of people who are willing and able to use violence um, from nothing would be expensive and dangerous and in, in some countries near enough impossible. So, yeah, it makes a lot of sense. Um, Brilliant. So um, what are the future plans for the project? Is there anything you've got to plug, a book coming out? or? Well, uh, we're, we're working on articles. Uh, there isn't a book that's coming out that I can uh, plug at the moment. But, you know, one way to follow the project is to follow us on Twitter, which is at Victorian EV lower dash UK. Uh, that's where we'll post uh, updates on uh, stuff we find and, and, and working papers, etc., um, we'll be presenting some papers uh, later this summer at conferences. Um, we hope we have 
some papers that will be under review shortly. We hope that, you know, by the end of this year, early next year, the first kind of outputs of the project will be coming out. And um, then, you know, shortly thereafter, we'll hope that we'll have a, a book proposal that we can workshop, etc. I mean, as I said early on, um, you know, the we were surprised by how much election violence there was. I mean, we I thought there was more than what historians had on earth, but I didn't quite think it was that much more. Um, I mean, you know, I haven't really talked about the data collection, but, you know, we, we went through all of the British newspaper archive using machine, le machine learning classifier. And uh, we, I think we looked into about uh, 18,000 newspaper articles that were identified as relevant. And we found 20,000 re event reports, which then, you know, clustered together to more than 2,900 unique events. And that took like two and a half years and 6,000 hours of coding work with 50 research assistants. So, uh, you know, the, the, the vast majority of this project was building the infrastructure um, and then getting the data. And we've been cleaning the data, which is always a, a longer process than what you think uh, it will take, and starting to work on the outputs. And then COVID hit and, you know, we all have uh, families, uh, kids, uh, etc., which you know severely slowed down the, the progress, and um, we'll have to see now uh, how we move forward. Given that, of course, you know, term time is going to come up, our research leave has ended, <laughs> etc. But um, we, I mean, we have all this information, and we're not going to waste it and let it just sit around. Um, there's too much good stuff here to 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 work on, and so you know. Within the next couple of years, I think there'll be several papers and, and hopefully a monograph coming out of this. Brilliant. Yep. Excited to see it. Um, well, great. Thanks very much for coming on. It's been uh, been lovely chatting to you. And uh, yeah, if you ever want to come back on and uh, discuss the book in more depth, that would be great. Good. I'll definitely take that and keep that in mind. And once we have the monograph, I'll get back in touch. Thanks very much for having me and having the project. Absolutely. Thanks a lot. Bye-bye. Uh,